I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is a Spacing Radio election special. We'll be bringing you weekly panel discussions from now until Toronto goes to the polls on October 22nd. This week, our guests are Matt Elliott, CBC City Hall analyst and Humber professor, and Trisha Wood, spacing urban affairs columnist and York University geography professor. Stand by. It's been a crazy election already, and uh, it's been kind of curtailed by all the Bill 5, better government, whatever, from uh, the Queen's Park over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've sort of addressed that in, in previous discussions, but um, let's go into transit because you, you both know that file very well. And uh, I wanted to start with, uh, you know, given uh, a Doug Ford provincial government, it seems like both the, you know, the front runners for the mayoral chair is... Uh, They've sort of accepted that the Scarborough subway is a given. Uh, so let's talk about that. Uh, Doug wants a subway in Scarborough, and uh, you know, even Jennifer Keysmat has sort of accepted. Like, okay, maybe it'll be a one stop, maybe it'll be a three stop, maybe it won't exist. Uh, let's talk about that first, Matt. Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the things that's really fascinating and hasn't gotten. Uh, enough coverage, though Jennifer Pagliaro at the Star has has written extensively about this. But right now, as far as we know, somewhere at Toronto City Hall, there is a envelope that has a report on the Scarborough subway with updated costs. Mm-hmm. And that report will not be released until after the election, probably not until January. And that is fascinating because if I had to put money on it, I would say that the reports will say that the cost of the Scarborough subway is going to go up substantially. Uh, and the costs are really going to be the thing with the Scarborough subway. Uh, you know, it is uh, something that Doug Ford wants. It's something that John Tory wants. Something that Jennifer Keysmat has sort of said, okay, whatever, Doug Ford can figure this out. But the costs, uh, you know, you can't spend unlimited money on this thing. So if it continues to increase... Uh, there's going to become sort of a back and forth where everybody tries to get somebody else to pay for it. And if nobody steps up and pays the whole freight, then maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe it gets delayed. I don't think the Scarborough subway is anywhere near a done deal. And for you, Tricia? I would agree with that. Uh, I don't know what the report is going to tell us in terms of a number after the election, but the research on mega projects suggests that even just a one-stop subway, we're looking at $5 billion before it's done. Uh, So we're not... The numbers that we're getting now are nowhere near what it's actually going to cost. So when we start facing that kind of reality, especially if Ford has in mind to increase the project to a three-stop subway, I think it's at least going to be prohibitively expensive in the short term. And in the meanwhile, depending on who wins the mayoral election, one significant difference between them, right, is that Kismat would shift that responsibility for paying it back to the province. And that fund that actually Rob Ford created, the extra money on the property tax, mm-hmm. um, can be redirected to other transit projects. So if that were to shift, you could move that money towards prioritizing the LRT projects, or at least the Eglinton extension to UTSC, um, in Scarborough, uh, that would be a significant difference. Uh, that doesn't, that's not really a comment on whether the Scarborough subway ever gets built. Uh, my fear is that not only will it not get built, but this 
this sort of rigmarole uh, back and forth politics over it will mean that actually nothing gets built, that it, the RT has to stop running. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's replaced with buses. Nobody likes them, but everyone sort of deals with it. Uh, money goes elsewhere. You know, it just sort of gets stalled and then the RT actually doesn't get replaced with any kind of rail service. Let's go worst case scenario. And uh, the RT is replaced with bus service, uh, you know, to, to reach, uh, to marshal enough bus service to serve that area. You need things like uh, uh, enough space to park the buses when they're not in use. Like, do we have that in, in that area of the city or would we be like flying in buses from all corners of the city just to serve what uh, should have been replaced with an LRT uh, maybe like a year from now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the city does not have enough buses uh, to even sort of maintain the level of service they should be maintaining right mm-hmm. now across the city. So if you were to suddenly add a uh, huge pressure and the need to uh, basically serve as the major spine route for all of Scarborough, uh, that would create all kinds of transit chaos. And yeah, there are questions. They are looking at building a bus garage uh, in Scarborough at McNichol. Uh, but as far as I know, that's still some ways off and, uh, there'll be complications there as well. So yeah, no, it would have sort of a ripple effect that would affect all of transit in Toronto. Possibly ironically, because I agree that we don't have enough buses even to provide the service we should be now, but if they could find the buses and they actually prioritize the buses along that route, that could actually be better service and more reliable service than the RT mm-hmm. provides now. So oh, it yeah. isn't necessarily worse, but it certainly is. But building nothing certainly is worse than building the LRT plan that we had. Yeah, like a, a true bus rapid transit system is is not yeah. a dirt. Shouldn't be a dirty word, but uh, no, absolutely not. The biggest problem is is that it's too short. Like we need right. much more of a network that spans much more of. Uh, the area that is Scarborough, because most people are trying to move within Scarborough, and mm-hmm. it's very difficult to do that. And Keysmet has actually not been uh, too shy to to sort of promote buses in, in her transit plan uh, so, uh, as much as we've seen it so far. I mean, that's kind of a bold step because, yeah, buses do get a bad rap, but uh, you know, you, it takes a mix of all like a multi multimodal system. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it is, it's one of those things, Olivia Chow in 2014, when she ran for mayor made bus service, sort of the headline of her transit plan. Uh, and for good reason, in the sense that if you're talking about how can I make the most impact in four years as a mayor, it is adding bus service and looking at ways to prioritize buses on bus routes. Uh, you're not going to be able to deliver a subway in four years or even eight years. Like these things are a ways off. So bus service is the reality, but the trouble always is, is that, you know, you talk about buses and people sort of fall asleep. Like it doesn't have that, uh, impact that sort of waving around a transit map with lots of rail lines on it seems to have in a mayoral campaign. Well, nobody, exactly, because yeah. Tori actually dismissed the her bus plan and then basically implemented it once <laughs> right, he became mayor. True. Because it is the best, and buses still carry more um, than the subway does or the streetcars do individually. They carry the the major weight, right? And right. they are the easiest to implement. They're the most flexible. If you prioritize them, it can be very good service. We don't prioritize them. And that's what Keysmat's talking about, which would be a very good step. Mm-hmm. We're getting back to specifically the Scarborough subway. Uh, what should we, I mean, and we have very little time to do it in this election, but what should voters be asking of mayoral candidates uh, when it comes to the S- Scarborough subway, you know, like, at this point, <laughs> yeah, Keysmat or Tory knock on your door and you say, "Hey, 
this is what we want, we need. <laughs> I think Tori's getting an easy ride as far as, you know, there is information out there now as far as we know uh, about what the Scarborough subway will cost. And Tori has said it can't be released because there's not going to be a council meeting until January or whatever, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous because the city hall releases information other ways all the time. So uh, if Tori was at the door, I think a good question would be, hey, why not tell us, uh, you know, what you know about the Scarborough subway or what the city knows about the Scarborough subway? Uh, Because any information that we could have before the election would be helpful for voters. Uh, so I would start there. And then for Keysmet, I think the, the question is just, you know, it, it is all about standing up to Doug Ford. If Doug Ford sort of says the Scarborough subway is happening in Toronto, you're kicking in a third of the cost of whatever the inflated figure is. Uh, what's the city going to do? Mm-hmm. I think Keysmet is saying basically that the city wouldn't necessarily kick that in, that if the province wants to build this, okay, they can build it and they can pay for it. We can go back to the kind of arrangement we had for the LRT. If the you know, province wants to replace that plan with this, that's okay. We like the, the payment arrangement uh, for that one too. And I think I, I agree that, uh, you know, Tori is kind of getting an easy ride on saying, you know, what's this going to cost? How much do you know? Uh, even, even if it's not even 100% accurate at at this stage, but I think the question that could be directed at both of them is: Will you commit to a, you know a side by side business case analysis of LRT versus the subway for for this line? Especially comparing that the LRT would go farther, right, mm-hmm. and serve a, serve a greater area. So you know, will you agree to a case by case analysis of value for money? Right. Yeah, once this report is released, um, because Tori has always resisted that. It seems like Keysmet doesn't even want to touch the LRT idea at this point, which kind of makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, at I least guess for so. Scarborough. I mean, know. she. Well, I I thought she did in the the transit debate, debate that she was prioritizing the the LRT line to. Uh, oh, the to, the midtown, like the Eglinton extension. East. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that is part of our plan. But I mean, specifically oh, in for terms re, of the uh, one versus the, the other. Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, there were probably was some debate in Keysmat campaign headquarters about whether they're in their platform they should include. You know, we're going to replace the Scarborough subway with an LRT. Uh, but the problem there is just, you know, that is a thing that would run you into a brick wall called Doug Ford. Mm -hmm. And so I think what they came up with was an approach where they just said, you know what, it's, it's the province's thing. They can figure it out. We're just going to be off over here doing our own LRT, uh, and hoping that that leads to a a good outcome. Yeah. It would be good to see actually as much as the subway and the costs of it, you know, really matter. And that's a conversation we need to have. It is, it is also good perhaps sometimes to step back and not let that take all of the oxygen out of the the transit debate. So that's the only line we go back and forth, go back and forth on. And I see her spending more time trying to talk about the relief line, for example. Yeah. And you know, uh, that brings me to the next sort of point is, uh, you know, she, she released, Keysmat did, uh, you know, a pretty comprehensive uh, transit map for the entire, you know, mega city, uh, the kind of map that a, a professional planner might draw up. Uh, and, and, you know, in some ways it was beautiful to behold, but again, you talk about that wall named Doug Ford. I mean, it seems to me that the first thing you can do is is scratch off any of the LRTs on that map because I don't see him... You know, after years of railing against that type of technology, saying like, you know what, what the heck, we'll, we'll build the LRTs. No, it's just, it's hard to know because during the campaign uh, at the transit debate uh, that was held, Rod Phillips was there to represent the conservatives and he 
he did make it, I think, pretty clear that they didn't care about pursuing the uh, projects along the waterfront. Okay, yeah. Uh, but he did say that Finch West would go ahead. Okay. He said, uh, now, having said that, it, it, does that amount to a commitment? You know, that ministers say something today and the premier contradicts them the next day. So I right. don't think we can exactly, you know, take that check to the bank. But there hasn't, I haven't heard anything that suggests they're going to take apart Finch West. So that one might go ahead. Okay. And I also think that the thinking and especially the public response on LRT is going to change when the Crosstown is open. Okay. Because they'll actually see like a living working model of an LRT and know that it's not the boogeyman. If it's it is indeed that, if it, if it yeah. works well and runs well, right. um, yeah, I think it will have a very positive impact because, you know, in other cities around the world, people use LRT and they love it. It works really well. Um, we don't have that kind of immediate experience here. We have a very complicated public discourse around the LRT with a lot of misleading information. But when we have an actual example that also spans so much of the city, mm-hmm. you know, in a critical place of, uh, that Eglinton is, an east-west, you know, connection, that will, I think, necessarily change how people view LRT, and that will change the conversation, but maybe not until literally the day it opens. Right. Yeah, it's one of those uh, see it and believe it things, and the Fords have been able to, over the years, sort of build up this idea that LRTs are, are terrible and run in the middle of the road even when they don't, and like there's, there's all this misinformation which will, I think, disappear pretty quick when people actually ride on one and think, oh, this is this is fine. It's like a subway that you know runs above ground, and uh provides good transit service and gets me where I need to go. So why were we so worried about this? Uh, on canceling LRTs, uh, the Finch LRT actually has some contracts signed on it. So there are things the government, uh, there are things Doug Ford can do as far as, you know, minimizing the potential penalties, but that could lead to more lawsuits. And he has a lot of lawsuits mm-hmm. uh, these mm-hmm. days. So he might be at his limit. Uh, I also just think in general, there is this strategy not only amongst the opposition and, uh, you know, transit advocates, but also in his own caucus to just sort of like keep stuff under the radar and hope Doug Ford doesn't notice because the Ford way has always been, you know, identifying uh, one thing that's right in front of them and saying, I'm going to destroy that. And if, you know, the Finch LRT just sort of keeps on moving along and more contracts are signed and construction gets more underway, then it becomes harder to to cancel. So I think you're going to see that strategy with a lot of stuff is, uh, you know, Metrolinx is just going to keep working away and hoping that there's other fires that Doug Ford is starting or putting out or starting and then putting out, uh, uh, you know. Right. And, you know, for, for Kismet's plan, you know, it is a generational plan. She's not saying she's going to build the, all of these things in four years. So, uh, you know, is it worth... Is it worth pursuing that plan and just say, well, you know, Doug Ford's not going to be premier forever. Doug Ford's greatest enemy is time, you Mm -hmm. know, like four years in politics goes by really, really quickly. You think you have a majority, you got all this time to do all this stuff. But especially when you're talking about transit and transit does not happen quickly, uh, it even if he cancels stuff, like how what's the difference between him saying he's canceled it versus, you know, it actually being canceled in some way that can't be resurrected by a future government. Maybe things get delayed by a couple of years, but, you know, eventually the city continues on the course. It's very similar to what we saw with Transit City where, you know, it died and then was resurrected. Uh, This kind of stuff can happen. The legacy the Fords tend to leave or have left 
thus far in governments is mostly a legacy of wasted time when it comes to transit, mm-hmm. not actually uh, you know, changing projects uh, in ways that actually leads to projects being built differently than they might have been otherwise. The one exception is the Scarborough subway, and that wasn't even really their project. That was a, a Karen Stintz and a provincial government thing. Yeah. And so switching to uh, Tory's transit plan, such as it is, I mean, he seems to be, it seems to me that smart track should be a liability for him because it doesn't exist. It was never going to exist. It's really just, it's a buzzword, you know, uh, and, and so here we are, he promised it in, I think, seven years, it was going to have, you know, 30 something stops or something like that. And none of that is going to appear. We're going to have the same, uh, you know, regional express rail plan that was always going to happen along those go corridors. Uh, so is that a liability or do people care? Like, are people mad that smart track is not going to appear? Smart track is, is a neat, uh, policy proposal because it's almost like a metaphysical question. It's mm-hmm. like, what is smart track? You know, it's like, what is man? You know, it's like, it's one of those questions that philosophers will grapple over a miserable pile of secrets, you know, containing multitudes. Right. Like it is very hard to, to nail down what smart track is. And because of that, Tory can claim that smart track is still happening, even though it's not something that people are really registering. Uh, but I would agree, I think. I mean, it's a broken promise in the sense that he promised a certain number of stations in a certain number of years, and he's not going to meet either goal. Mm-hmm. More than that, it was also not supposed to cost us anything. Yeah. yeah right? It was supposed to use tax incremental financing, which never should have been proposed for a project that large, nor do we have the kind of, to use the terrible phrase, urban light mm-hmm. that you know would produce the kind of revenue that is, you know, so new and extra that we don't need it anywhere else in the city, et cetera. I mean, nothing about the original project was ever going to happen. But when people tried to critique it during that election, you know, he he called us all a bunch of, you know, naysayers and people who don't have, who aren't sufficiently optimistic or, or ambitious. Um, but yeah, it was, I think it was 22 stops uh, within seven years. It wasn't going to cost us anything. Instead, we're getting six, but we're actually getting eight within the city. And this is actually one of the things that I find very interesting. But the, but first, the six that we're getting, we're paying for. Right. And it is not the case to say, well, of course, because we're building them within the city, the city pays for them. The province would never pay for new stations within the city. In fact, the province is paying for two new stations within the city. And this is what I find very interesting. And I think it speaks to a huge weakness in Smart Track's conceptualization in the first place. Because after... Tory had identified his stations and then narrowed it down to the six. Metrolinks identified two others that will, in fact, also improve ridership. Two of the six stations that Tory identified will actually have a negative effect on overall ridership. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are, we might as well put money on a platter and set it on fire, honestly, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and make congestion worse. And I thought we were trying to do the opposite. But I find it very telling that after we'd identified these six, narrowed it down to six, so we even started with 22, that Metrolinx identifies two more within the city at uh, Spadina in front and at Lansdowne and Bloor, um, and they're going to pay for them within the city. But those aren't smart track, but the ones right next to them are. All smart track means is the provincial plan that the city is paying for. So not only is it not costing us, not not are we not in a situation where it's not costing us anything, we're paying for something 
that we never should have been paying for in the first place. And there's every reason to believe we would have gotten it without paying for it because it was part of the ghost system. Yeah, the mayor and the premier are supposed to have a relationship that involves a lot of negotiation. But John Tory with Smart Track really went to Kathleen Wynne's government and said, okay, here's my proposal. You have a transit plan. We're going to pay for part of it. And the province was probably trying to stop themselves from laughing. Yeah. Like, what good fortune. Like, you know, they uh, were going... my arm. Yeah, like. exactly. exactly. It's, and it's the subway all over again, right? Okay, right. we had this LRT plan that the province was going to pay for, yeah. and we gave it up so that we could pay for part of a subway. Yeah. And the province probably went, that sounds good, because <laughs> we can get the feds, because they did, right? The feds kicked in, yeah. um, because of mostly because I think of Flaherty's relationship with the Fords, but... You know, the province is saving money left, right, and center, and the city, for some reason, doesn't have money, you know, for any other priority, especially social priorities. Mm -hmm. But man, have we got money to set on fire right. for transit. Um, yeah, I want to move now to uh, tearing down the gardener. Uh, Matt, when the, the two of us were working for Metro, we sort of made a editorial push to cover that every which way we could, um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a lot of the urbanist corners were saying, tear it down. It's, it's a blight on the waterfront. It's, you know, it's, it's a psychological and physical barrier. And uh, by tearing it down, you would unlock all this development potential. And that's money that the city could be making in new property tax and mm -hmm. new jobs and all that good stuff. And uh, council said, no, it's, it's kind of, to me personally, probably one of the worst things about the last four years uh, yeah. uh, on council. Um, so Kismet says she's going to tear it down, uh, which she tried to say, you know, was the right call back when she was chief planner and was kind of told to, you know, stay in her lane. Uh, now her lane's whatever she <laughs> wants it to be. So uh, let's talk about the gardener. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, the gardener was one of those moments where I was watching a council meeting and a council vote happen. And I just thought, you know, like this, nobody's going to look back on this and think, wow, this was a really smart move for mm -hmm. us in uh, you know, this century to invest this level of resources and a city that does not have that many resources on keeping up part of an elevated highway. And part of an ele elevated highway that is not well used uh, compared to the rest of the elevated highway or other highways. Uh, so yeah, it's a decision that still stings a little bit for me. Uh, I do have questions about like how far along is the city in this process? What would canceling it now look like? Mm -hmm. But if it can be done and done in such a way that the city is able to get back, you know, some of this budgeted money, which they almost certainly would and put it towards other things. Like we can make all the urbanist arguments in the world and I've made probably all of them over the years. <laughs> uh, but like fundamentally just make the fiscal case, you know, it's like right. we don't, we have limited resources. What are we going to spend our money on? What else could we, we be spending this money on? And is this level of build an elevated highway here in the Gardner East necessary to carry the number of cars that we're seeing and we'll see over the next 30 years. And the answer to that is emphatically no. And just for a little background for the listeners, so the plan is, uh, you know, the option back uh, in the previous council term was, uh, are we going to maintain uh, what we have in the Gardner East or are we going to sort of rebuild a portion of it uh, to unlock some development potential on the waterfront? Uh, or are we going to strike it down altogether and build uh, a sort of what Kismet called at the time a grand boulevard? And I think she's returning to that language. Uh, 
currently, we uh, council did arrive at the hybrid plan, they call it, which is sort of rejigging it, rebuilding it, because it is falling down. Uh, there are contracts that have been signed, so we may have to pay to get out of those contracts. But I think, speaking to your fiscal case, we need to ask, is the money that we would lose canceling those uh, contracts uh, greater than the money that we would gain from unlocking all the development potential by knocking it down entirely and, and leaving sort of an eight-lane eight boulevard. Um, I think one of the advantages I remember from the reports is that the boulevard option opens up more land for economic development. Right. Uh, so I think in the in the long term, the, the fiscal case is there. Uh, and there's still quite a big difference between the rebuild and the boulevard. I mean, somewhere in the area of $500 million. So that gives us a lot of wiggle room for getting out of contracts. What I remember so much about that really reversal of council's earlier decision to go with the boulevard was it was really the first time that I think Tory revealed that as much as he talked about how he was going to listen to evidence um, and make evidence-based decisions, uh, he made it really clear that he wasn't going to. Mm -hmm. Because what I remember is not just the council debates, but I remember going to uh, a meeting that I think maybe Pam McConnell organized. I'm not sure, but it, she was there. But so was Paul Bedford, David Crombie. And it was like basically this public event at City Hall that was kind of pitching him on, you know, look, here's the rest of the evidence. And it was done very kindly and kind of like, maybe you don't know. But, but here's the rest of the evidence. Here's the overwhelming case. I mean, it was in the... As Dylan, I think, who did the the report, you know, the, the consultants, but it was all in there. But you know, here's here's the whole case. Here's the evidence, the the fiscal, but also you know the safety issues, uh, um, you know the environmental issues, where it scores very highly. And in so doing, because some of them, you know, were friends and allies of his, I thought they were creating that kind of the political space for him to back down. And, you know, and, and look like a good guy, look like a smart guy. Right. And I would have thought that was the smart play, you know, politically. And he dug in and ignored not just, you know, the crazy downtown lefties on council, but he ignored his friends and allies and, and colleagues, you know, in other walks of life yeah. that I would have thought he would listen to. And I thought they were making it actually very easy for him to change his mind. And he chose not to. I thought that I... I thought that was a very telling moment. And I think, you know, his, the rest of his mayoralty is kind of. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. And one of the things, because somebody came up with this sort of hybrid, this notion of, uh, it sounds like a compromise, right? right. It's mm -hmm. like, we are not advocating just keeping it as is. We're not advocating tearing it down. We're advocating kind of like a middle ground, even though it was basically the same as keeping it just with some modifications and some tweaks. Uh, but for Tory, this is one of his, his political ways you know if there is a compromise on the table something that could be presented as a compromise he goes right to that mm -hmm. and uh he has trouble sort of sticking to to one side or the other in binary debates yeah and uh, on top of that I'll, I'll add that you know without uh without there being a literal rob ford or a doug ford on council at the time the presence of ford nation was still you know it seemed to to me that tory felt that even even the people that he named to important uh positions in you know the various committees uh if, if you ask them who they would pick between tory and uh you know ford nation they they would say ford nation and so it seemed like 
he knew the benefits of tearing down the gardener. He knew that it was a cost that was not worth it. Uh, he's even, you know, there are video clips uh, that have emerged of him in 2013 passionately passionately talking about why we should tear down the gardener for his grandchildren. Right, when he was for, a radio yeah, host. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. exactly. So exactly. He, he knew, like, uh, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it seemed at the time that uh, he, he was very aware of this Ford Nation presence. And I guess he wasn't wrong because it came back in a major way just uh, from a new corner <laughs> in Queens yeah. Park. But at the same time, like if he had backed the Boulevard option, tearing it down, you know, right now, you know, that happened a few years ago. It's 2018 now. The None of the construction has started really either yeah. way. So it probably wouldn't be a huge issue. People right. had this election. And ultimately, like there was a way he could have found a compromise that I think would have worked in sort of maybe saying, you know, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to commit to keeping the rest of the gardener and I'm going to accelerate repairs on it and maintenance and all this stuff. And we are going to uh, go with the boulevard for the gardener east. And that might have worked. And I don't think he would have faced a lot of political blowback. But John Tory leads a very cautious political life right now mm -hmm. i think he has run in a lot of elections and lost in a lot of elections mm -hmm. so that guides a lot of his decision making it's amazing because in some ways he, he leads a very reckless political life in terms of the fiscal well-being of the city oh yeah True. um i mean i completely agree with you and i think it's very interesting that he's able to present that because you know uh, uh, if you look at the future economic well-being of the city um, the gardener in particular is going gonna, is gonna to kill us because because of the gardener and the cost of the gardener, we are actually planning uh, in our state of good repair budget to be in worse shape in 10 or 20 years from now than we are now. That's the plan. The plan is to be deeper in the hole. Right. And the biggest thing that's the biggest, I guess, equipment that's digging that hole is the gardener. Like it's going to swallow up our state of good repair for, for transportation infrastructure in the city and leave us worse off everywhere else like that's that's insane mm -hmm. and I think that's absolutely reckless and certainly the city manager has come as close to calling him reckless yeah. as he could and yet he he doesn't make the bold moves that would save us from that he does continue in this very cautious well you know don't move too quickly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything will be all right and and I think it also unfortunately works for some people because he seems calm so we shouldn't worry yeah, I'm not sure how that works. Uh, uh, the city needs to make really bold and probably controversial moves now to spare itself a lot of pain and struggle later on. And that, I think, is something that we should be talking about more this mayoral election. Uh, who is best equipped to make those big and controversial moves now so we can be in better shape later on? I uh, have not heard a lot of conversation about that. Well, let's talk about exactly that. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I think a lot of urbanists uh, are very excited about uh, the prospect of uh, a Mayor Jen Keysmat, But... Uh, given the state of uh, the city's finances, as you say, like we have a huge state of good repair backlog and uh, we have a whole bunch of uh, capital expenses that we have committed to but don't really have the money for as yet, um, I think it would be wrong for her to come in and promise, uh, you know, a, a goodie bag of a whole bunch of, you know, I'm going to complete the cycling network and I'm going to build LRTs everywhere and we're going to have a bus rapid transit network uh, all across the inner suburbs. Is what you're hearing from her just, you know, kind of taking stock of the political reality? Because it would be wrong of her to say, like, I'm going to build everything, uh, you know, especially when we can probably say that we're not, we can't count on the province for much. Oh, yeah, that, that last part. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. I don't think I've heard her 
come out and say, look, this is how I'd pay for everything. I don't think we've had enough of that no, conversation no from anybody. Um, so you have to read between the lines a little bit. I do hear, you know, $500 million in savings on the gardener. And she has said that she would maintain, I guess, most of the so-called smart track, but cancel, I think, the two stations um, that would lose ridership. Well, those stations are extremely expensive. So that's somewhere between three and $400 million. So that is a lot of found money to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not, you know, it doesn't pay for all these major projects by any stretch, but there is that. And then if we do focus on stuff like bus lanes and bike lanes, those are not expensive. They're nowhere near, you know, the cost of this, this, this big, uh, these major mega projects. Right. So, but nevertheless, like, so I see some, I guess some positive signs, but no, we haven't had the conversation and especially we haven't had the conversation about property taxes. Yeah. I live most of my life trying to get people to talk about property taxes more because okay. they are uh, incredibly important. Uh, and well, yeah. shoot your shot, man. This, I, is, this, what this, this is what this is what I'm here for. Um, like the reality is, uh, and this is not something people can dispute. If the city of Toronto were to raise its average residential property tax bill to the level of the GTA average, because right now Toronto homeowners pay uh, among the lowest in the GTA it's like between us and Milton mm-hmm. uh, and Milton does not have a transit system there's no subway in Milton they have a beautiful escarpment they do have that yeah and some nice rolling fields and you know there's this stuff happening in Milton not to no slight to Gord Krantz he's been around <laughs> for a while uh, but you know so if Toronto were to raise its average residential property tax bill to the GTA average which would put us about on par with Markham mm-hmm. people seem okay in Markham uh, that would unlock a, a hell of a lot of revenue for the city to spend on programs. And we don't even need to go as high up as Markham. We could go, go a little bit higher, like, uh, you know, Oshawa or something. And mm-hmm. so there's various levels that we could go to. And there would it would be controversial. And the mayor would face some blowback for advocating for it. But I have not seen any analysis that should suggest that anybody would be particularly imperiled because property taxes went up to these levels. Mm-hmm. So the money is available through something the city could do. We don't need to go to the province. We don't need to go to the feds. The city has the capability to raise this money. It just requires an honest conversation about what kind of money we need and what it needs to be spent on and uh, what's the sort of process for us getting to those levels because you'd want to phase it in slowly and not just raise property taxes a huge amount in one year. Uh, So there's a way to do it. The city has the capability. Well, what's interesting, of course, is that that's what Rob Ford did. Rob Ford raised our property taxes to pay for the Scarborough subway. He added, you know, a new charge to it specifically dedicated for that. Rob Ford, if he can get it through. (laughs) But the other thing is, it's so funny, the the political fear of it, because there are lots of examples of usually conservative politicians, um, mayors and governors, usually like in the United States, who who say, yes, I'm going to raise your property taxes and this is what I'm going to do with it. We're going to, you know, we need to rebuild. We need to reinvest. Um, but here's the plan, and those people win. Yeah. So I, I, I must confess I'm, I'm a little frustrated, but also confused by the political fear of having this adult conversation because there's a lot of evidence to say that if you say what you're going to do with the money and it makes sense, and these are the things that people say they want to have done, mm-hmm. like it, it, it works. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. It would right. be good, and especially when, as you say, the case is so easy to make. We're just coming up to the average of our neighbors. There's, there's no good reason not to do that. 
Well, I think the problem for Keys, Matt, is that John Tory's team has, uh, from the hop, uh, basically since she entered the mayoral race, uh, tried to paint her as this tax and spend NDP or she's not. Uh, you know, she's actually, you know, sort of left of center, I'll say, but, you know, she's not. Right. Uh, she's not going to sell the farm. Uh, but uh, I, I think her team must be aware of. Uh, the pitfalls of, you know, saying that she's going to raise taxes, even for all the best reasons and even pointing yeah. out what, uh, what we would stand to gain by a very reasonable increase in property taxes. So she is kind of painted in a corner and maybe that's why we haven't heard her really address it. A little bit. I think the challenge though is like, if you're going to go with Tory's promise, which is to keep property taxes at or below the rate of inflation, uh, based on everything we know, that pretty much means that you can't promise anything new. Mm -hmm. Like you are locked into the status quo and even the status quo is going to be a challenge to maintain at those levels. Uh, so Keysmat needs to come out and say, I will raise property taxes somewhat if she actually wants to talk about substantial improvements, you know, whether it's stuff like park maintenance or saying, I'm going to like empty the garbage bins on the streets more often so they stop overflowing, like promises like that require an honest mayoral candidate to say, I am okay with raising property taxes a little bit. Don't need to go to Markham levels, but just a little bit to fund this stuff. Uh, but mayoral campaigns get spooked by the idea because, you know, provincially and federally you have the income tax. All you need to say is we're going to, you know, improve the economy and we'll get more revenue because people will have more jobs and make more money and that will uh, increase our income tax revenue. Uh, property taxes do not work like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you want to be an honest mayoral candidate and you want to talk about new stuff, you got to be okay with property taxes going up. Um, there's a lot of things that I, I could talk to you guys about. Transit's a huge file in this city. It always is. But uh, I'm looking at the time, so we're going to have to just uh, talk about the elephant in the room, which is Doug Ford wants to upload the subways. I'm sorry. I see the look on Trisha's <laughs> face. We have to talk about it. Doug Ford has a plan, uh, <laughs> such as it is. Uh, he's going to upload uh, the TTC subways uh, somehow. Uh, it's going to... There's going to be a sort of partnership with the city of some kind. We've yet to discuss it. I haven't heard any of the mayoral candidates discuss it at all. It's just kind of like something that we seem to be avoiding uh, talking about. Keysmat, I was just looking up her platform, and she has this sort of like, well, the province did, uh, you know, promise $5 billion, and that's cool, we'll take that, and we'll work with them, provided that whoever the mayor of Toronto is gets a final say to greenlight a project. That's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, other things like, uh, you know, that there should be no privatization. I think most speculators have said that, you know, Doug is eyeing privatizing thing. That's, that's how he's going to build this subway station to Pickering and wherever. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what... What should a mayoral candidate be doing to address this? And, and when they win, if they win, what, what can they possibly do in, in the face of this kind of, I'm going to call it a harebrained scheme? <laughs> As Matt and Trisha look at each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where, where even to begin? Harebrained scheme is good. Um, I do think... Uh, one idea, uh, probably a very serious one that Ford has to the extent that he has an idea and a plan, uh, yeah, is to upload it so that he can sell it. Mm -hmm. um, that's a catastrophically bad idea. And it's not to say that there aren't private transit systems operating successfully in the world. There are. Um, 
taking apart the TTC so that one, one you know, mode of transit is now separate from the others, uh, putting it in private hands um, is, is dangerous on several fronts. I mean, it will certainly affect the functioning of the system and the network um, very badly, and especially at a time where we're trying, Metrolinx is at least at times, uh, trying to improve coordination of transit in and through the city. Um, it would likely reduce service uh, and increase fares in order to, um, you know, pay for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what kind of subsidy the province would continue to provide for it. But more than that, it's a kind of governance chaos because um, there's no body uh, at the province that has the capacity to operate something as complex as the TTC. Right. The, the, the best they have on the transportation front is Go Transit. So mm-hmm. Go Transit carries per day about the same that the streetcars do. And that's trains and buses, right? right that the streetcars do in the TTC, uh, which, is, which carry the fewest of all three modes. So the, the complexity, and not just the complexity of operations, the complexity of, of management and labor and, right. and the rest of it, there, there's, there's nothing at the level of the province prepared to take that. So what are they going to do? They're going to upro- upload part of the TTC operations bureaucracy? Yeah, anyone who's looked at the TTC sort of, you know, central network where they op- operate everything, it looks like the bridge of the enterprise or something, you know, like it's, it's a huge undertaking. Well, that's, the, that's, the, that's sort of a, a problem with transit governance generally is I, I continue to believe that the, the province, not just this government, but the previous government, uh, completely fails to appreciate the scale and the complexity uh, of what the TTC does, that mm-hmm. there is no other transit system in the province uh, that that compares. Are you saying the premier doesn't appreciate something <laughs> in the city of Toronto? <laughs> no way. Way. Uh, if I could try, like I, I do agree that this is uh, a policy proposal that is fraught with peril. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are reasons to be a little bit optimistic about the chances of it happening or not happening, uh, it's complicated. Like there's no way to make this simple. Mm-hmm. And the Fords have trouble with complicated things. Uh, everyone remembers or will remember if they want to cast their minds back to the time when Rob Ford and Doug Ford were bound and determined to prove that the private sector would pay for an extension of the Shepherd subway. Right. And they produced a whole report. They spent a lot of money on it. And the report eventually came back and said, no, not going to happen, dudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get this built if you as the government raise some new revenue. Uh, but, you know, it ended up being complicated and it, they ended up spending some time trying to figure it out and stomping their feet and saying, we can definitely make this happen. Uh, but it didn't happen. And I think the real test for Doug Ford and his idea of uploading the subway system is, is there a way for him to do it that doesn't add huge costs to the provincial deficit, provincial debt? Because ultimately, that's something that he knows uh, his base is going to be watching, and the PC base is going to be watching very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you know the one thing that we can feel a little bit good about is there was a chance he would just like announce he was doing it and like send everything into chaos. And 
uh, just sort of try to force his way to making this happen. But instead, there's sort of this been this announcement. There's going to be like a one year process of looking at it and reporting about it and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, who knows where we will be in a year. Uh, What's a private company going to think of the uh, state of good repair budget? Yeah, exactly. Like no private company is going to touch this. Yeah, I don't know what the value is going to look like. Well, well, that's still his sitting there. Yeah. So, I mean, if we had uh, somebody who was maybe more into the policy side of things, then uh, I would be way more worried about what might happen. But I think like with the Finch LRT, this is also one of the things where they're sort of hoping that they can just sort of fly it under the radar and maybe he'll forget. Maybe he'll forget. You know, there's going to be so many other things. He's got a lot of lawsuits on the go. Meanwhile, part of your question, too, sorry that I didn't answer at all, was like, what should mayoral candidates say? Ideally, mm-hmm. I would love to see mayoral candidates say, if you do this, we will fight you. Okay. And because as much as, you know, cities are creatures of the province, blah, 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 uh, politics doesn't work that simply. And the city is generally not happy. This is confirmed not just by canvassing at the doors, by polls, is not happy with the interference in our wards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the number of wards, and they're not going to be happy with, you know, risking the public transit. Because if public transit ridership reduces, congestion gets worse. Like, this solves nothing. So I would really like to see uh, mayoral candidates say that they will give Doug a hard time every time he says, I'm going to interfere with your business. Mm -hmm. Uh, That doesn't mean they're always going to get their way, but for sure, if we don't fight back, then we don't fight back and, you know, we just get railroaded. But it, it will, the, the provincial conservatives still want to elect people in the city of Toronto. So there are limits as to right. what they can do. And I hope they're remembering that, uh, you know, people are not necessarily going to forget this in four years. They didn't elect a conservative provincially in the city of Toronto for 20 years after Harris created the mega city, right? right. We do have long memories here. Mm-hmm. And if they want to break in, especially from the edges of the city, where they are now, you know, and expand that at all. There are limits as to how much they can mess with the city, right? And still keep even their own MPPs uh, on side. So I, you know, this, this would not be good for the city. It wouldn't be good for the province either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to see, you know, mayoral candidates say that they will stand up to the province and argue them into the ground when the province threatens to interfere with our business. We have uh, about two and a half weeks left in this uh, election, such as it is. Uh, so I'm going to ask you as a sort of closing thoughts, uh, what do you hope to see in the next two and a half weeks? I said this yesterday at a panel at UFT that uh, in July I had all this thought about, you know, what's this election going to be about? How's it's going to go? All these issues that we could cover. Um, and then, of course, uh, Bill 5 happened and everything changed. So we have just not had the kind of election that I was hoping we would have in Toronto in terms of elections being a chance to talk about the issues. So, uh, you know, for me, I think the really important thing to talk about over the next few weeks is the fiscal piece. You know, how is the city going to keep itself on sustainable financial footing? Because that is the question. Like everything else is kind of irrelevant if that isn't figured out. So uh, my effort is going to be that thing I like to do and just trying to get people and candidates to talk about property taxes. I'm going to do my best. Okay. I agree with all of that. I would like to see uh, some of the conversation shift to um, back to, you know, actually substantive discussion of issues. I'd like to see the mayoral candidates, um, all of them, um, Put, continue to put out, or some of them begin to put out, you know, a concrete 
proposals, detailed proposals about even just ideas about uh, what they'd like to see, how they'd like to invest in the city, how they're going to make uh, everything balance, um, how they're going to stand up specifically to you know provincial interference. Uh, the uh, the whole question of uh, what Bill Five did, um, you know, is not is not done. I mean, not just that the court system isn't done, but that conversation isn't done. And other mayors across the country know this: that mm-hmm. we need to have a serious conversation, uh, you know, about municipal government. Um, you know, what kind of autonomy uh, it's going to have. Um, I would also like to see. Um, more and more people get engaged, particularly just to help out the candidates who now have to cover twice as much territory. Uh, you know, I'd really love to see people step up and get involved with their time and money if they have it, but especially with their time and energy mm-hmm. in supporting uh, candidates, uh, you know, that they that they would like to see win in their wards. I'd really love it if now that some of that smoke has cleared, if we could focus on things that matter to people in their neighborhoods and their communities, but also see people, you know, really step up. I'd, I'd love to see one positive outcome of all this chaos be that, um, that like, you know, turnout goes up, mm-hmm. you know, and that more people actually come out and say, oh, well, now I've got to choose between incumbents. Um, I'm going to, you know, I mean, that's not the case in every ward, but it is in several, right? I'd, I'd really love to see the engagement kick up. Um, that, that's another part of it I'd like to see. All right. Well, this has been Spacing Radio, the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. We are broadcasting from the boardroom of 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Very fancy. So fancy. Uh, before we go, uh, Trisha, how can people find you, your work, and uh, you know your social medias, that kind of thing? Oh, easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm PKB Wood. Okay. And uh, Matt? I'm on Twitter at Graphic Matt, and you can find my work uh, at the CBC uh, every weekend at CBC Toronto. Oh, and I forgot to mention, uh, you can also find Trisha's work on spacing because you are our new uh, uh, urban affairs columnist. I am. You can find me there, too. So welcome to the team. Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you both for, for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this show, please give us a like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes as it'll help us reach new listeners. I make this show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.